3: Hey everyone! Happy Saturday! Here's a bonus episode. This is actually a chat that myself and Finn McKenty, who is a previous guest on the show, he runs a podcast and YouTube channel called The Punk Rock MBA. Not only is he a stellar human being and a good friend of mine, but uh, he runs great stuff. His podcast is uh, all about taking people who are, you know, in this world of, you know, punk rock, hardcore, DIY stuff. And then you're really digging in with them to whatever it is that they've, uh, you know, applied those principles to in their professional life, you know, whether it is the music world or whether in my specific instance, the podcast world because I've worked in the podcast business for quite some time and uh obviously been doing the show for a while. So, anyways, you need to check out his podcast. Uh, it's really, really good. So this is the discussion that Finn and I had. So uh, yeah, enjoy it as a bonus episode. All right.
2: Raymond Harkins III, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for appropriately
3: identifying me by my full name.
2: What I want to talk about on this show is podcasting because you have been deep into podcasting for way longer than most people and you probably know more about it than almost all of us so I just kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about that.
3: I I would love to. I am a a podcast nerd. I actually looked like not too long ago I looked to see when I first published my episode of well technically not 100 words or less because when I first started it it was called uh, First World Problems and the first episode I published was September 23rd 2010 so it's almost been 10 years that I've been doing podcasting
2: that's a long time i started my first podcast which i did i don't know 50 or 60 episodes of around then and i felt like that was kind of late to the game but now i hear people say that they started their podcast two years ago and it's like well that was early when podcasts weren't big i'm like really Totally. The moment
3: that, you know, because I've uh, like, you know, interviewed people from like a job perspective in relation to podcasts and just had conversations many, many times over about podcasts. And when people, you know, it's always interesting to hear kind of what people uh, listen to and when people start their podcast origin story with like yeah so i got into serial i'm like oh okay yeah. all right I, I, and that's fine like it's no Fucking no shit poser yeah exactly oh oh cool so you, you you like the band's third record okay cool cool <laughs> right. they had two before that you know that green green day has two records before dookie just to let everybody know that's right but yeah so that's that's a good jumping off point
2: raymond harkins the third the podcast hipster but yes, in all seriousness absolutely. you have been creating an into podcast for much longer than most people even knew they existed uh your show 100 words or less how many have you done now it's got to be like close to a thousand or some shit <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's not a thousand but i appreciate the the high number i think i'm around uh yeah i mean, i'm definitely approaching 400 i think i'm yeah like 380 390 so yeah it's been and if maybe if you add the other 20 some odd episodes i'm over 400 of of podcasts put out
2: which is a lot, you know, I mean, uh, we can talk about this more later on, but I feel like one of the biggest places where people go wrong with podcast is lack of consistency. You know, they make four of them and then they kind of burn out and, uh, then they wonder why it didn't become successful.
3: Yeah, and they have a literal term in the industry called pod teague. Oh. And I, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous to say that, but it's like the, you are very correct in that. It's like the, anytime anybody talks about starting something, it, whether it's a, a band, whether it's like, you know, a, a hanging out with friends on a semi-regular basis, it's like, well, you gotta give it time. And like, ultimately the arbiter of quote unquote success should be your enjoyment of the thing. It's like, if you enjoy it, then keep doing it. And if it doesn't, like, take too much of your day or too much of your mental headspace to do it, like, that's, you know, that's what you should be focused on as opposed to, like, I got to hit these metrics in order to do this thing. And it's just like, well, I I mean, sure, I guess. Like, but if it's not, you know, if you're, like, being a a, a present partner in your relationship and you're doing all these other things, and it's like, that's fine. That's, you know, still continue that because that's all I've done. It's like, I've still been able to, a job like so, some people come at me and are like, Oh, so is this podcast your full time job? I'm like, No, like I never want it to be because it's still that enjoyable thing that I'm able to do and meet people you know across the world to have these conversations that aren't able to take place in any other medium. So it's like, Yeah, that's to me, that's success. It's like, Yeah, I get to hang out with friends and people who I admire their art and then dive into why they still care about what they
2: do. And as soon as something like that becomes your job, then it becomes your job which creates a whole other set of expectations and whole other kind of pressure and stuff like that that doesn't exist when it's a hobby where it's like, oh, that's if it gets, you know, if, if, if the show grows cool, if it doesn't, eh, that's okay, too. Totally. Yeah. And it's it, because,
3: you know, when you put something out in the world, and when it becomes something that people appreciate, whether or not it's like the biggest thing or the smallest thing, when people appreciate it, that creates some cultural currency that you are able to then, um, you know, keep it, Going and keep it relevant to whoever it is that's listening. And I think to me, that is a sign of success where it's just like, oh, when people have heard of your thing, whether or not it is something that they are extremely passionate about or not, that's a different story. You can't, you know, you can't control that. But when people are like, oh, dude, I've heard of your show, like, that's really cool. Like, I I really appreciate what you're doing. And that's I'm like okay great success like <laughs> that nothing else that I I uh the more resources that are put at a thing it's going to you know get maybe more people to listen to it per se but maybe those people aren't going to be as engaged because you're talking about trying to make something that is inherently not meant to be mainstream mainstream you know
2: well that's kind of one thing I've been thinking about with my podcast now that I'm uh, as of this conversation I have released of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, so not too many, but, uh, and, and it's off to a decent start, like I said, you know, there I, I think I got somewhere around 15,000 downloads or so in the first, like, three weeks, which I think is pretty decent, but that's tiny compared to YouTube, obviously, and so that's kind of one of the things I'm I don't know, struggle would be overstating it, but I'm just sort of recalibrating my expectations or or not expectations even, but just recalibrating the way that I think about 15,000 because 15,000 views on YouTube for me at this point would be a bomb. But I think for a podcast you know, that's three weeks old, that's pretty good. Right. And so I'm kind of thinking about like, as you said, it's not just about the number, it's about who's listening and why they're listening and what kind of conversations I'm having with those people and, and I kind of think with podcasting, a podcast listener is more valuable in a lot of ways than a YouTube viewer to me, because it's like you're having a conversation with them. You know, they feel like they're sitting in the same room with you, talking to you, and it's 45 minutes or an hour long. So to me, you know, 15,000 podcast listens is far more valuable than 15,000 YouTube views.
3: Sure. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. And plus too, when you are doing what you are doing where you are you know trying to spread your audience across different uh, verticals, whether that's you know I mean what you're doing obviously with your YouTube channel and then your podcast like this is just a further extension of the um, the sort of uh, thoughts that you are putting into your YouTube channel. you are just expanding on them and in a different medium and in turn, you know, whatever people that watch the YouTube channel are obviously going to listen to the podcast or people that just listen to podcasts can be like, well, I'll check out one or two of his videos. And like, that's, to me, that is a valuable currency that you're able to, um, you know, have because then at the end of the day, people are more endeared to you as a person rather than like this (laughs) content creator or whatever. People are just like, oh, now I get to know Finn more via this, you know, more personal medium where you're actually able to talk more about yourself rather than, you know, pontificating about, you know, whose logo is the sickest.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's an important thing for people to think about. Creators of all kinds is, and it depends on your goal, but Adam Elmokais and I talked about this uh, on the podcast I did with him. He, he said that at one point, you know, he kind of realized, yeah, I've got a lot of followers, but they're following me because of who is in my photos, not because they're following me. And that might sound like a really selfish, like arrogant, you know, self-centered thing to say, but I think it's an important thing for everybody to consider. You might be okay with that or maybe not. Like for example, with podcasts, if you're just interviewing a bunch of people in bands, are they showing up for the guests or are they showing up for you? And maybe you're okay with it being that they just show up for the guests, but maybe not. And I would say for most creators in general, I think you should be trying to cultivate a following of people who follow you. Not who are just coming for big names that are attached to whatever you're doing because, you know, if the big names go away, then you don't have anything. Totally. Like what what did you really build if they're just there for the big names? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, exactly. All they are is a, a jolt of promotion, you know? And that doesn't necessarily mean like I I, <laughs> I remember Uh, I had Jordan from newfound glory on my show and like, he's married to one of my old high school friends. And like, it's just this weird, you know, sort of, uh, wow, life is really much smaller than I ever (laughs) anticipated. Yeah, totally, totally. But anyway, so it's like him and I were able to dive in pretty deep about like how much his like, you know, the divorce of his family, uh, you know, really affected him and all these other things. And like, you know, when people are being vulnerable with their life experience, you're not just going to sit, you know, me as a Hugh, I'm not a journalist. I'm not sitting there being like, Oh man, this is great. This is a great scoop. Right. <laughs> I'm just like looking at him as a person. And so like, I start to, you know, empathize with him and talk about, you know, my experience with divorce and whatever and other experiences. And I remember getting an email from a person after they listened to it, who clearly was just like, you know, what I like call a drive-by listener. Yeah. It was like, Oh, Jordan from Newfound Glories in a podcast. And, you know, she was, uh, very just like, you you know you interjected too much you spoke too much about yourself and like i, <laughs> I and I, I was like i get where she's coming from like
2: hey ray why don't you shut the fuck up on your podcast
3: totally totally and just the the idea that it's like oh here i'm watching this person be vulnerable and just be like right. oh okay yeah well moving right along let's talk about something else <laughs> right. it's like dude are you kidding me and so but to that that point people are used to the way that things are as far as the interaction between, you know, a a guest of the show or in the host of the show or whatever. So it's like, I get it. I didn't, you know, I sent a kind email follow-up to her being like, Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, You know, I just watched a person be vulnerable. So of course I'm going to sit there and try to empathize with them rather than just be this, you know, callous guy that's moving right along. So, but yeah, you're, you're, you're very right in that.
2: There's a a podcast, which I won't name, uh, but (laughs) they, they, they're notorious for that you know, the person would be like, well, you know, uh, last year was really difficult for me because I got a divorce and my mom died and, uh, you know, I got cancer, uh, you know, but, <laughs> right. uh, you know, we're, we're back in the game. Be like, cool. Well, how's the new album coming along? <laughs> yeah. It's like, just, this is so awkward. Totally.
3: And it's like, dude, that person just hung three softballs for you. And you're right. just like,
2: You're not going to talk about any of those things? Like, are you even? I feel like you're not even listening. You know, this is not a conversation. You're just like reading the questions off a piece of paper. Absolutely. So, I wanted to kind of get into the details of kind of the the mechanics of a podcast, not like the production stuff, but kind of the business side of it that I don't hear people talk about too much. And you have visibility of both sides of it because of your history as a podcast host. And how would you describe your, uh, your day job? Uh, as it relates to podcasts.
3: Yeah, so I've been working in podcasting as far as the industry is concerned for the past like five years or so. I used to work for a company called Midroll slash Stitcher uh, because they rebranded themselves overall about two years ago because Stitcher is a podcast player and more consumers were familiar with that than Midroll. But basically, Midroll was a... um, you know, a monetization arm for a uh, podcast company that was attached to this other brand called Earwolf. So it's like, I mean, had shows like uh, or the shows that we were selling were like My Favorite Murder, you know, Bill Simmons Ringer Network, WTF with Mark Maron. So and that company was very early to the game in regards to the idea of what a podcast network was, because not only was there sort of this collection of shows where hopefully people could kind of promote one another on them, but then there was a monetization arm to it. So aka, you're getting ads for the shows talking to ad agencies and negotiating cpms and doing all that sort of stuff so
2: so like if you hear somebody read an ad for casper mattresses or whatever you could be the one who made that happen
3: absolutely yeah so i stepped into that job doing sales even though i'd never done sales in my life the person who brought me into the company the whole reason i got brought in there was because midroll picked up my podcast to sell so i knew people at this company for probably it was maybe about two years prior to me getting hired so at that point that's when I started to see ads come on my show um I never I mean I I guess I had some sort of vision of like oh maybe someday like people will advertise in the podcast but at that time you know whatever 2013 or 14 that wasn't really you know prevalent for shows that are talking about punk or hardcore you know it was like maybe if I was like a famous comedian then so be it so they picked up my show and then I started to you know randomly get ads here and there from like you know Squarespace or Audible and so I started to see that money start to flow in but then you know, fast forward a couple of years later when they talked to me about working for them, I was like, okay, I don't know sales at all. Uh, but I could, I'm passionate about podcasts and I can talk to people. So, you know, I think those are <laughs> two pieces that are important. Sure.
2: So what is, what does sales mean in that context? Does that mean you go door to door and say, Hey everybody, I'm Raymond Harkins. Would you like to buy some podcast ads?
3: Yeah. My role in particular was not so much of a cold call from that perspective. I was working with these large, uh, digital ad agencies, uh, um, um, agencies like uh, Ad Results and Performance Bridge and Oxford Road, these are things that are going to be meaningless to most people. But these are agencies that have like, you know, anywhere between 20 to 40 clients that they're helping do media planning. So these are people who are, you know, some of these agencies only focus on one thing, i.e. podcast, or some of these agencies focus on we do radio, we do TV, we do, you know, digital, we do all of it. And then, you know, we also do podcasts
2: let's say I'm like Ford or Chevy yep. and I say, Hey, we've got $5 million for this campaign. Then this agency would reach out to people like you and say, let's put X, you know, $1 million in the podcast and $3 million into TV and $1 million into radio or whatever. And you might be the person to help them, allocate that million dollars of podcast money
3: that's exactly correct (laughs) they would put together their media mix plan where they know that they, they are tasked to spend that much money in this particular you know whatever q2 q3 of this year and so they start to work with you know different partners and be able to put together budgets and of course they're looking at the podcast landscape holistically so they just look at shows and they're like Oh, okay. Like, we'd like to advertise on these shows because, you know, we just think it's a good fit or whatever. So they end up talking to, like, you know, two or three different. Uh, podcast networks or publishers, as it were, rather than just going to one, you know, so it's like they're talking to, yeah, two or three agency or not agencies, two or three networks, and then they start to, you know, drill down on like what the costs would be and all that sort of stuff. So that was my job, basically, looking at some of these, you know, big companies like, you know, ZipRecruiter, Casper's one, you know, Blue Apron, when they were spending a lot, and then being able to introduce them to new shows, being able to, you know, try to figure out uh, how they can allocate this money. that, you know, oh, this show isn't performing very well, so let's, you know, allocate the money elsewhere or whatever, or we have to cancel this show and all that sort of stuff. So it was a lot of moving parts.
2: It's interesting how many layers there are between, you know, probably most people don't think about this, between the advertiser and the show for example, let's say there's a a Casper mattress ad on my show, there could be three or four different people between me and Casper and, you know, me and and Casper and I never talk.
3: No, for sure. The only interaction that you would have from that uh, perspective would be if uh, Casper has, uh, you know, deemed your show to be of a certain level where you would, you frankly, you'd get a free mattress to speak to your personal experience on it. So you would, you know, Uh, say your podcast was working with, you know, mid-roll, I would then, uh, you know, I would be like, hey, Casper, you need to advertise on punk rock NBA because of these demographics. You know, he's whatever. He's a fan of Casper, whatever story I'm telling.
2: So if it's a Tim Ferriss or something like that, where he's very he has a big audience and he's into these sort of, you know, lifestyle hacks, you might say, hey, uh, this might be someone to send a mattress to.
3: Exactly. Because then they're going to. Uh, speak to their personal experience. And frankly, that's obviously, you know, a, a, it's not even a secret sauce, but that's part of, you know, I mean, frankly, that's how radio has been built too. you know, people being like, Hey, this product is rad. You should try it. And that's exactly what podcast advertising is all about too. Cause the moment that, you know, you try a Casper mattress and you're like, Hey, this is actually really cool and they're advertising on my show. And then, you know, when you're doing your read, you're like, Oh, Casper sent me this mattress, you know, my wife and I sleep on it and like we are totally in love with it. It's like that, People that have developed a relationship with you are going to be much more inclined to try that out rather than listening to the you know Geico Gecko being like, hey, <laughs> buy
2: insurance. Hey, if it's good enough for the Gecko, it's good enough for me. That's true. That's true. So you did that for a few years, but you have moved on since then. Yes. Yep. So I, I
3: worked there for about four years and then I moved on to um, iHeartRadio, approached me to work for them. On their podcast team, it's a small team, but the, you know, obviously the organization is massive because they own like, I don't know, 750 radio stations across the country and just all this other stuff. So, but they recognize the power of the medium of podcasting and how it kind of fits in their overall uh, media portfolio and audio portfolio. So they invested a ton of money, acquired a company in like 2018 and, you know, all of 2019 were basically ramping up to, um, you know, be a major player within that scene. So I came over in July of 2019 to work for them. And, you know, after a few bumps and understanding kind of where I sat within the company, um, you know, the past couple of months have been really awesome and really interesting to watch how, uh, you know, frankly, a large corporation is able to mobilize and get people, um, involved
1: in not- this show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
3: Not only spreading the gospel of the podcasting medium at large, but then being able to, like, take these shows that, you know, were doing ostensibly well on their own, but being able to supercharge them and talk to, you know, hey, Capital One, are you interested in spending, you know, five gajillion dollars? And they're like, absolutely, because we love you, iHeartRadio. And it's like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) like... Whereas, you know, the previous company I was working for, like, you know, we'd work with certain large brands. It was always really exciting, but you know, those would be like maybe two or three a year where it's like here at iHeart, I am seeing that happen on an almost weekly basis of like these really,
2: because they have relationships with all these brands that go back years and years and years. So it's just kind of plugging them into a new media channel.
0: In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. Join us for fake doctors, real friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
3: That's exactly correct. And just being like, hey, you've been advertising on radio or digital for all of these years. Like, here, this is another awesome solution for you. Um, You know, if you are interested in testing this out, let's, you know, let's figure out what that would look like, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's. it's just at a scale now that I have uh, never witnessed in the past. And, you know, it's only going to get crazier over the next couple of years, just because, you know, podcasting as a advertising medium is still in its absolute infancy and is still trying to figure out so many different aspects of reporting and, um, you know, brand safety and all of these things that the other mediums already have proved out. But uh, podcasting is still...
1: You
2: know, the brand safety one is interesting to me because that overlaps a lot with YouTube and so well why don't you explain to people what brand safety is
3: yeah absolutely so there's a lot of you know when you're talking about these you know huge brands that you're going that you see advertised everywhere you know clearly they're you know whatever you see a coca-cola billboard they don't have a call to action on it they don't you know they're not like hey buy coke it's just being like hey
2: 50 cents off now it's exactly
3: so they're, they're all they're trying to do is just make sure that That brand is top of your mind. And so um, in turn, these huge brands, like when they're running advertising, they want to be able to, because they need to be ubiquitous, they need to run across a ton of different channels. But at the same time, like Coca-Cola cannot be advertised on something that is deemed even remotely offensive in any capacity. Even if it's a person that, you know, they're doing a Coca-Cola read on their podcast Uh, But then, you know, they're explicit and they're swearing all around the ad, but not actually in the ad. That's something that they don't feel comfortable with. So they're not going to align themselves with that.
2: I'm interested in this because on the one hand, I totally get that because, you know, the CMO's, you know, wife's friend could get an email. It's like, my son was watching YouTube and he saw one of your ads on a video about blah, blah, blah. You know, I understand that. But at the same time, I feel like, the reason why podcasts and YouTube are as popular as they are and as engaging as they are is because they don't play by the same rules as traditional media. And so, I feel like if you apply old media brand safety guidelines to podcasts and YouTube, you're kind of missing the point. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, they're on the other hand, I I understand that they do. You need get it, to be- right? <laughs> careful. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm curious how they think about that. And I, I don't know how much you can speak on their behalf, but curious how, how those big brands think about the brand safety kind of question while also taking advantage of these platforms.
3: Totally, no, I I completely agree, and I think I, I remember a campaign. This was like probably about two or three years ago. There's a uh, podcast called uh, "Beautiful Stories with Anonymous" or from anonymous people with this comedian named Chris Gathard. Um, it was part of the Midroll Network. A really, really compelling show where he he basically just took a random call. Uh, it was screened, but took a random call from somebody, and then basically he had no idea who they were, and just kind of talked to them about their lives and like there's so many unbelievable stories came from that because everybody has a story so anyways uh i think it was i don't know it was some credit card company i can't remember who but uh they were really pushing the idea of just like okay we're going to be doing this 30 second spot um usually when people are providing you know ad copy and they're working in podcasts they want to give the host creative freedom to kind of do what they want um you know, hitting certain points, but at the same time they're speaking to it in their voice. But this credit card company was like, no, word for word, it needs to be this. And like, are, you know, so many people were just like, don't, you're, you're missing the points. Like, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, why are you having this host read essentially a script and not having any personality right. for it? Um, the campaign was completely unsuccessful because it was, you know, the host was just handcuffed. and was like, all right, well, here's this thing you get points back, <laughs> and blah. It's like it just sounded horrible, and so. Yeah.
2: I mean, authenticity, I guess, is at at the core of what makes these work. And when you force people to read a script, that's not authentic and you just wasted your money. Yeah,
3: no, exactly. And it's like they and granted, that was a few years ago. So brands weren't as um, cognizant of what this medium actually meant. They just heard, you know, to your point, they heard someone was like, hey, we got to get on some podcasts, like get on some podcasts, everybody. And so they didn't know what they were doing.
2: You know, what I what I wonder with this stuff is, Who do you actually think is going to be offended? You know, if you're, I don't know, call it Pampers or whatever. Yep. You know, you think family. Okay, well, how old is somebody that has, say, a a child in diapers? Probably late 20s, early 30s, right?
3: For sure. And so a person that has clearly heard a swear word before.
2: Like, do you think that person is going to be super offended? Think about what they grew up on. Do you think that person is going to be super offended by somebody saying fuck on a podcast? Yeah, not at all, not at all. You know what I mean? It's totally. like, we're not talking about like senior citizens here that are consuming this stuff. But anyway, so that's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately. But so talk about kind of what is the process of, for a new show, because I get this question a lot, you know, people want to monetize their content now. On on YouTube, that's easy because they do the ad sales part for you, essentially, because of AdSense. But for, say, a newer podcast, like, let's say I came to you and I said, Hey, Ray, I want to start monetizing my podcast as quickly as possible. What are your thoughts on that? Like, let's talk that through. Cause actually I do. I let's have this conversation for real. Cause I am interested in this.
3: Sure. The first piece of advice that I offer people is, um, yeah, doing exactly what you're doing currently, you know, just basically kind of building your audience and whatever that may mean where, you know, I always like to encourage people to kind of find their plateau. And I mean that from, like you're talking about, you know, with or like we were talking about earlier with guests, where it's like, okay, you know, you've been publishing consistently for about three months, and you know, yes, you see some peaks and valleys where it's like, okay, this person is more popular than this person, so you know, you ostensibly can can kind of calculate that idea that, all right, well, you know, this was really pop, this, this received you know thirty thousand downloads as opposed to three thousand because this person promoted the hell out or whatever. But once you kind of see your plateau in regards to, hey, consistently, like I can you know publish an episode irregardless of the guest and be able to get you know whatever 1500 2000 dollars whatever the number may be um so you find your plateau and then at that point that's when you kind of have sort of your base of audience as it were then i encourage people to also find out more about that particular audience and you can do that by a super super simple like 10 question audience survey because at the end of the day the most important thing to advertisers is a demographic. You know, they can be compelled by your content and who you're theoretically speaking to, but when you are actually able to, you know, provide some uh, audience survey demographics, these are people who are taking the extra step and answering 10 questions for you, Finn McKenty, on your particular podcast. So... Once you kind of have that, you know, when you have a decent enough respondents, like, you know, whatever, if you put out this survey and you only have three people that respond, like, you know, that's not, it's <laughs> not very compelling data, but you
2: got 50 or hundred people or whatever.
3: Precisely. Once you, my metric has always been like, once you have a hundred respondents, like kind of regardless of the size of your show, the margin of error in regards to, um, you know, those responses is less than 5%. And when I say margin of error, I mean like the data is not going to be so skewed in one way or the other, you know? Yeah. So Once you kind of have those two components, you have your sort of plateaued number of downloads, and then you also have an audience survey. At that point, then you have some actionable data that you can either do one of two things with. One, you can attempt to kind of reach out to people just sort of independently, whether it's like, Oh, you know, I heard this person this person advertising on this podcast, like you know, and not from like, oh yeah, I've heard ZipRecruiter advertising on podcasts. It's like, well, yeah, of course, like you've heard them everywhere. You're not gonna coldly reach out to ZipRecruiter, but there are some things that make sense in certain aspects of what your content is bringing. So, like, you know, for your podcast. It would make absolute sense for record labels to be interested in advertising on your show. Um, of course, they have no budget and they're not interested in spending money. <laughs> but you know, if you're coming with a compelling enough reason, where it's like, "Oh yeah, actually, I have this band member coming on. Your record's coming out in three months."
2: Or like, I've proven that I can break a band, and yeah, you know. Yeah. Something like that.
3: Totally. You're able, you're able to kind of prove that then you're able to be like, you know, and even if it's something as simple as like, dude, you know, give me like $200 for a month's worth of advertising and I'll do, you know, four sixty second ads. I'll send them to you, whatever the case may be. You just then are for, cause first of all, a lot of people are like excited to monetize. So they're like, Oh man, I can't wait to get ads. And the moment they start doing ad reads, they're like either one, this sucks and I hate it. Or two, uh-huh. they're terrible at it. And you need to be terrible at it first Before you're like getting some huge, you know, sponsor on board and they're like, oh, we're going to spend $10,000 on your show. And then they hear the first couple ad reads and you're just like, "Uh, uh, uh." like tripping over yourself.
2: It's better to make your mistakes when it's some indie label paying you 75 bucks. Low stakes. Than Zip Recruiter paying you five grand.
3: That's exactly correct, because it's like when you if you're uh, arriving at a space too early and, you know, you're whatever you come to a party and you're, you know, dressed to the nines and then you come, you know, and everyone else is like casually dressed and you're just like, oh, crap, like I'm showing up to the wrong party
2: or worse the other way around. Like, oh, you can just wear whatever you want and you show up in like a hoodie and everyone else is wearing a suit and you're like, oh, yeah, damn it. I'm that guy.
3: Yeah, I'm not pro enough. So, yeah. (laughs) So the. Those are just like good uh, sort of growth steps. And plus, it's like, again, I mean, I, I there's a podcast that I'm I'm sort of, you know, helping from a consulting perspective right now. And he, again, as most people that are attached to us, Finn, are old hardcore kids. So he but he's super into fishing and he has a really successful fishing podcast. And, you know, there are. Uh, there are sponsors that would literally never advertise on any other podcast in the entire ecosystem, but they're like, oh yeah, we want to reach fishermen. So it's like, oh yeah, it's a lure company or whatever. And so that's the sort of stuff where, you know, podcasting is powerful for that reason because it's, you know, it's a bunch of different niches and each, you know, show can have its own particular niche that it's going to be speaking to in a real way as opposed to like, oh, you need the biggest sponsor possible. It's like, no, you don't. Like you can probably make honestly a good... $10,000 Ten dollars to $15,000 a year if you are just focused on these, you know, whatever, 20 companies that are speaking specific.
0: Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com
1: products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit mfm.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6,000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying, and even deadly, is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
3: it's baby steps first. And then, you know, if you get to a point where it's like, Hey, I've had these like, you know, interesting niche brands advertise on my show. Then in turn, then you can maybe talk, you know, you can talk to networks, you can talk to, you know, your minerals, your I hearts and your wonderies and whoever else to be like, Hey, I've got a provable enough, uh, portfolio of advertising, um, maybe you want to bring me on and then you can access these other things or people stay completely independent and then just, you know, are like, well, Hey, maybe I'll just do a, a Patreon to be able to, you know, kick some extra revenue mm-hmm. or, you know, I'll just do merch for myself and it's the same exact principles as a band. So,
2: so if I was to summarize, tell me, tell me if you, uh, if I got this right, get to a point where you have a rough idea of what your sort of baseline audience size is. Uh, whether that is 1,000 or 10,000 or 50,000 downloads per episode, just have an idea of what that baseline is. Second, do a survey so you know who those people are. And then third, reach out to potential advertisers that are of the appropriate level for where you're at, whether that's big, small, somewhere in between. And then go from there. Totally, totally. Because
3: once you start to, again, kind of amass that experience, not only in consistently publishing your show... But then also being able to like actually execute on the deliverables, like, i.e., doing your ads right and making sure you're communicating that to the actual sponsors, and like just being accountable from that perspective, you can start to get into a workflow to where when you do have something that is a little bit more, you know, slick or professional or larger, that you already have this sort of built-in uh, system of how to kind of handle it, rather than being tossed out in the middle of the ocean and you've never done it before, and then you're just kind of like, I don't, I, I'm lost. I don't have any idea what I'm doing. Right.
1: Hi, I'm Esther Dean, and I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at ten nine central on NBC. And join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So I know a lot of people are interested in the idea of a network because, you know, the network does the selling for them. Do you think it's smart to reach out to networks early on or should you wait till they come to you? Or what are your thoughts on that, having been on both sides of that?
3: To me, when you have your stuff in order, i.e. going through all of those steps, you're going to look infinitely more polished than, um, you know, if you were just coming to, you know, say you just had the numbers. And like, of course, when I say the numbers from a download perspective, those are clearly important. But like, I know from a uh, mid-roll perspective, like whatever, this is 2017, 2018, the bare minimum of what we were looking for to pick up from just some random show that had no real relationship to anybody at the company uh, was like, you know, at least 50,000 downloads per episode over a two-month period.
2: That's a pretty big number.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And so, and that's kind of devoid of context, like devoid of content that's just number wise. And so, it's one of those things where so many shows just like did not even come remotely close to that, but they were like, well, this is kind of compelling content. But then there were certain shows that kind of threaded a needle where it was like, okay. Here's this like I'm going to use a super random example but there's this show called Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy who uh, she is a uh, I don't think she was a stay at home mom when she first started but anyways a, you know a family woman um you know husband wife uh, I think she had like 3 or 4 kids um, you know, it was successful on her own as far as like, you know, she had a really cool blog and she had written a book or whatever, but like her podcast wasn't huge, but her demographic was so unbelievably valuable because it was like, you know, 99% female. Um, they pretty much listened to whatever it was that she said. If she pointed them a direction to like, hey, check out this guest and check out this thing it was just like incredibly powerful. And her show was consistently sold out once we brought her onto the network because uh, she had such a great relationship with her audience. Um, again, she wasn't—you know—she wasn't like my favorite murder downloads, mm-hmm. like you know, a million plus an episode. She was like under a hundred thousand downloads per episode, but it, it was so incredibly successful because of all of those reasons, and she had that compelling information. So,
2: as an advertiser myself, those are the people that I always look for: are people who are actually influential, and I think there's a big difference between well-known or famous and influential so for example like my favorite murderer that has a ton of that is a big audience but i don't know that that show is necessarily influential you know what i mean because it's, it's totally. a piece of entertainment it's not a human being that represents a lifestyle that i am trying to attain you know what i mean
3: yeah Oh, absolutely. It definitely, I mean, my favorite murder isn't maybe the best example because they, you know, that show does have like an unbelievable fan base from that perspective but your point is still is still stands
2: yeah yeah i don't listen to the show so i don't know but
3: no no but you're yeah but
2: you get the point
3: totally well i, re- I remember my time when i was working at PETA um the animal rights organization i was responsible for like celebrity partnerships and i'll never forget there was there were, i can't even remember who this person was but whatever was a social media influencer you know millions and millions of um you know views on youtube and whatever and then so working with this person on like a dog ado- adoption campaign, and we were really excited because, you know, you get magazine placement, all of these moving parts. So it was going to make it really successful. And then we did, a, you know, a photo shoot and an ad with uh, Elisa from Arch Enemy, the mm-hmm. metal band. Uh, you know, speaking about veganism because she's a staunch animal rights supporter, and her ad was like just as far as like traction and visibility, and just like all the metrics that we used to measure it was like literally four times successful as this social media influencer to your exact point,
2: even though Arch Enemy is not a giant band compared to this other person.
3: Nope, totally, yeah. And I, I, the only reason I'm not naming the person is because I literally can't remember this (laughs) person, so it was like, it was like they were. Totally. They were, you know, memorable for a year and then they were gone. But yes, you you are completely correct that it doesn't necessarily matter the size of the person's audience. It's like if they are mobilizing those people, you are going to be better spent investing in that than, you know, a person that has like scale and reach.
2: Tim Ferris is the perfect example of that to me uh, at my old job, Creative Live, which for anyone who's not familiar is an online education company for creative professionals, primarily like photographers and graphic designers. And we worked with a lot of influencers, some super like mainstream famous people like Mark Cuban and Damon John and stuff like that, Jared Leto. And the person who moved the needle more than anybody else was Tim Ferris, who is not nearly, I mean, he's a well-known guy, but not nearly compared to Mark Cuban you know, compared to people that are on shark tank, uh, that really just didn't move the needle for us. And anything that Tim ever recommended, his audience loves him and listens to him and they will check it out. So that was like the kind of truest example. We tried so many times, like who's the other Tim. And we just kept going back to him because his audience listens.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. It's you identify and it, it's a really difficult, um, position to put yourself in. Uh, but like once you do uh, achieve that, it definitely is, you know, incredibly, incredibly powerful, no matter what partnership you're creating, whether it's, you know, content or whether it's advertising, that's the stuff that will really, um, you know, keep people coming back.
2: Well, uh, we've got a few more minutes left here before, uh, as I said earlier, we have a hard out and you made fun of me for saying hard out.
3: It's okay. I I, I've said it before too, and I just try to catch myself anytime I'm in that sort of like, especially when I'm talking with friends and like business synergy, where I'm just like, oh gosh, I want to kill myself. I don't need to say
2: that. (laughs) I get a hard out at eleven. Yeah, but we do have a hard out at eleven. So there's two things that I wanted to ask about on the same topic. So we've we've talked a lot about how important audience numbers are and aren't in some ways, but at the end of the day, we would all agree that having a bigger audience is better than not. So. Let's talk about how to grow a podcast. And I, there's kind of two questions there, two, two topics that I want to ask about. The first is the whole like discovery thing, how to organically grow it beyond having guests on that will promote it. It seems like Apple seems to still not really give a shit about podcasts. Spotify is doing a lot of stuff, but discovery is, seems like it's still really hard for podcasts. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the number one thing that most people talk about in regards to building things, uh, especially in relation to podcasts. So yeah, there's, I mean, honestly, there are like three ways that are sort of proven from that perspective. One, like you mentioned already, guests. Um, Two is editorial placement, i.e. placement on, you know, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher. Like if you get
2: featured on one of these Exactly. I don't know what you call them, distributors or whatever.
3: Yeah, totally, totally. So it's like, yeah, you get a cool graphic, you get mentioned in a new and noteworthy. And it's not like those things even really kind of move the needle in a big way. But, you know, it's still something to talk about, kind of track where it's like, oh, if you do place in a chart in some capacity that it's like, oh, there might be some, you know, negligible bump in your listenership
2: or whatever. Yeah, we got featured fairly high on the, uh when I worked on Chase Jarvis's podcast at Creative Live. I don't know if, I, I want to say it might've been even on the, I don't remember what it was, but like the main podcast feature thing at the time, you got some big like 16 by nine graphic and that they featured everywhere. And it got us, I want to say maybe like 10,000 10, downloads or something like that over yep. the course of a couple of weeks, which is cool. But, you know, to your point, it, it didn't, it's not like, wow, now all of a sudden the flood floodgates are changed. open and more yep. famous. You no, know, totally. It's just like a nice little bump.
3: Yep, exactly. It's, and that, it, it really, they're in the same way that, marketing bands is, is all of this is just you know is kind of throw it against the wall and see kind of what works from that perspective um and so and then the, the third way is just you know paid media or trade media so you know if you have a community of podcasters that have a you know certain size audience if you basically just mention their podcast on your podcast um you know that's that's kind of the way That people can sort of, you know, organically grow or you just simply pay for ads, you know, and a lot of people do Mm -hmm. do that on a pretty regular basis.
2: Do you think that's money well spent paying for the ads?
3: I I haven't seen I mean, I haven't seen it. From a sort of like metrics, like, a, you know, a uh, wrap up report where it's like, oh, this is what we saw with these paid media campaigns. I know for I was like in 2018, I want to say we did a real big push for Stitcher as a listening platform. We advertised on other podcasts and, you know, sort of like minded. Uh, shows that we would think that people who are podcast nerds would be like, oh, I'm going to ditch my player and listen to podcasts via Stitcher. Um, So there was, from a branding perspective, it was good um, because there was like, you know, more familiarity and, you know, brand lift and all these other uh, nerdy marketing term. But KPIs, you know, um, that got delivered to us via a wrap-up report but you know to say that there was some like you know uh, stitcher as a listening platform went from like you know six percent to like seven point five percent like we did not see any sort of meaningful bump. Bo- no hockey stick exactly no hockey stick I think that there is value it just depends on how much you are actually putting towards it you know if you're just putting a couple hundred bucks into it like that that's totally reasonable and totally fine especially if it's like oh the, I, this makes absolute sense advertising on this
2: podcast hmm. But I guess my my point there or question there is that as much as I wish you could just buy your way into an audience, I just I don't think you can.
3: Yeah, it's it's really hard. I mean, I know that uh, it's I mean, working at iHeart, it, it's wild because, you know, we have the access to 750 plus radio stations. And so many of our podcasts are advertised on these specific radio shows, you know, just in your average radio block. So it's serving two masters there one it's introducing people who are radio listeners to the medium of podcasting and then two uh, to a specific show that might interest them. so it's really really cool to see that in r- real form and certain shows like absolutely get a pretty huge bump because you know uh, of whatever promotion is going on at the time. Um, but to be able to like track all those moving parts is really really difficult because you know you're like, oh wow. There's advertising on these radio stations for, you know, Sunday through Thursday or whatever. And like, how does this correlate to downloads? And like, you know, I don't work on that team, but still it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of watch that megaphone be used in a really, really interesting way to kind of prop both the industry at large and introduce more people to podcasts. And then the specific show.
2: Interesting. I was not aware that people were advertising, you know, you would think that radio would be hesitant to advertise podcasts because it would cannibalize radio. But in the case of iHeart, they own both. The cannibalization isn't isn't as much of an issue.
3: Totally. They're serving the same master from that perspective. And all it is, is being able to introduce more people to something that they might be interested in even further, where it's like, you know, whatever. There's a hugely popular radio show in New York called The Breakfast Club. And we launched mm-hmm. a podcast with uh, Questlove from The Roots. And so it's like, you know, to see that sort of uh, growth once, you know, The Breakfast Club mentions like, oh yeah, Questlove has a podcast. And people are like, oh, absolutely. I love Questlove. So there's there's some of that that just works out so, so well. Um, and then there's others that like, you know, you could promote till the cows come home on radio and no one will care about it.
2: Right. Well, let me ask you one last thing then before I let you go, since we're running up against our time here, booking guests, because like we said, we know that this is a proven way to to grow a show. You get some cool, popular people on who will promote it. That will definitely grow your show. But how do you get those people on? Because, you know, you're a new show. You know, I, I just started a podcast. My dream guest is Ollie Sykes. What would you say, like, how do I work up to getting Ollie Sykes on my show? And how long is that going to take?
3: Totally. I mean, there's two ways that you can view it. One is that you actually already have some relationships on your own where you're able to kind of wedge. You're like, oh, I know the publicist or I know the record label. So you can work those angles. Like Any personal connection that you may have to a band, an artist, a guest in any way, work those angles, you know, as early as possible, because you can at least be like, hey, I've started this thing. Here's my vision of it. They're going to give you more time because they're your friend, as opposed to Mm -hmm. here's a seven paragraph thesis on my podcast to a (laughs) random publicist. And they're just going to be like, what the hell is this person talking about?
2: Well, let's say that like most people listening to this, you don't really have any relationships like that. You're just a a kid that started a podcast. You know, man, one of these days I would love to have Ollie on my show. How would you get there?
3: Yeah, I would get there by, um, you know, again, kind of developing your chops, being able to have the consistent release schedule and show that you are a sort of proven quantity to some people, because you're going to have to get through gatekeepers, you're going to have to get through the publicist or the record label. And when you're able to showcase the fact that like, yes, I'm proven by the fact that this podcast has been going for a moment, and that can be anywhere between two to four months, because say, you're able to land a huge guest, and you're able to use that as kind of a pitch point to all these publicists or whatever. Where you're like, oh, I've had these two guests on that are friends with Ollie. So in turn, that would be able to you know, open up the doors there, even if they're a smaller band or whatever. So being able to prove yourself to these gatekeepers um, by your consistency, being professional, being um, you know, uh, concise in what your ask is. Being able to just be like, listen, I would love to have Ollie Sykes on. Um, you know, he's—I know he's in between press cycles right now, but like being able to identify some things where you're empathizing with the person that you're pitching. You're like, I know there's a lot of pitches that come mm-hmm. out of this, but this is kind of why I think. This would be an interesting look, not from an egotistical standpoint because I'm like, oh, I'm the best interviewer, you know, but being able to right. build a compelling case. However you want to take that is up to you, um, but being able to be as professional as possible, which, you know, that, that can kind of be uh, part and parcel of every sort of cold reach out. But I think if you just develop your, um, you know, your your authority in some capacity from your consistency of your release schedule, how professional you are, and then honestly just just stay at it. Um, the there has been people that I've chased, like I've literally written letters to people, um, to get them <laughs> on to the show because they've kind of made me jump through hoops, and I was fine with that. I was like, whatever, I I love this person, I want to have them on the show. That's what it takes, totally. And so you know, if you have a little reminder where it's like, all right, every three months, I'm gonna follow up with you know all these publicists or whatever. Those are the things where you just have to like, all right, I'm gonna try this for you know a year, year and a half. Like I remember. I personally chased uh, John K. Sampson from the Weaker Than's and Propagandi. Here's a dude who hates interviews, notorious for like his one record cycle. He did interviews via postcard. Like that's how, and he wasn't doing it to be cute. He was just like, I just don't like interviews. It's just that guy. Yeah. 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 I'm like, I get it, dude. He's done millions of interviews. So I was able to get introduced to him via uh, one of the members of Propagandi and just a cold email I went out to him, but I was like, very short and concise, just being like, I love all of the stuff that you've done musically. I am a big fan. I think that you would enjoy this medium. Here is my, you know, here are your peers that have appeared on this show. I would love to, you know, hear from you. I tried to go through epitaph, just a joke, like we're not going to be helpful, not because the people are terrible at their job; they just didn't have any attention span for it, right? So that's why I went to that d- uh, direct.
2: And also, like you know, thinking from their perspective, like why should they go out of their way to help you?
3: Yeah, this is a person who I would met like in passing before, so I was like, I had no hope that that was going to happen. But anyways. It just in in the consistency, it took me a year and a half to finally book him because he was like, oh, yeah, actually, like, you know, I'm moving, like, whatever. He was corresponding over email ever, just very sporadically. And uh, But then finally I made it happen, and I was like, this was great. And it was so weird because then when I first started to interview him, he was nervous. He was so nervous. And I was like, dude, you're nervous. I'm nervous. Like, this
0: is crazy.
3: (laughs) But – ultimately the sort of uh, diligence and persistence that I had on that was able to, you know, kind of push that over the line and get something that I really wanted. But I think that's the length that people go should go to when they're trying to chase whatever it is that they are chasing from a guest perspective.
2: Cool. Well, super helpful stuff. I feel like anybody who has a podcast should go back and listen to this from the beginning. Take notes because we just told you, All the questions that come up, like we probably answered 80% of them. And then you know what you need to do. Now you just need to do the work. That's the hard part. But I think this podcast pretty much lays it all out for you. Is there anything else that you would add before we wrap it up?
3: I think ultimately just because I have seen so many people descend on this medium in a very, uh, you know, uh, culture vulture way of being like, Oh, this is it. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Really, really, really do it because you like it. Like this is like, I literally did not make a penny off of my podcast for the first, I don't know. I would say like at least four years. Like, again, I was just doing it because this was a fun exercise for me to be able to creatively express myself. Um, and then once I was able to make some money off of it, I was able to, you know, be more professional in my presentation or whatever else, whatever else the case may be. But that wasn't the ultimate goal. So you really need to care about the thing that you're doing and give yourself enough time to be able to experiment with it. Doing it a month and then bailing out, like we were talking about at the top of the show, it's just not worth it. You're just wasting your time. You're wasting the people who you're asking to spend their time with on. And that's just, yeah, it's a, it's a waste. So do those two things first. And then like Finn said, follow those other things that we were talking about. And then you'll probably end up in a really, really cool place in, you know, whatever, six to 18 months.
2: Cool. Well, there you go. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and uh, hopefully we'll make it down to uh, Southern California soon and uh, get a chance to hang out again. Absolutely. Have some coffee and give each other high fives. We'll see you then.
0: (laughs) Thanks, dude. Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to rewatch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes, show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference.